You're listening to Monday Morning Live, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League. Okay, well, welcome everyone to another edition of Monday Morning Live, the webinar, and Monday Morning Live, the podcast, Monday Morning Live, the Facebook feed, uh, all the different things. Uh, I am Matt Bach, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications with the Michigan Municipal League, and I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, all the members of our our Lansing team this morning. Uh, uh, We got a a big show here today. We're going to be talking about our community stabilization plan that we just uh, rolled out at a news conference we had at 10 a.m. this morning. Um, We'll be talking about that and sharing links uh, to that information that we'll that we're, we're doing. Um, but before we get started, I did want to welcome Harrisana back to the team. Uh, Harrisana took a, a brief leave uh, to work on the uh, presidential campaign. So we appreciate uh, your, your service, uh, Harrisana. Uh, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be back. It's also <laughs> really great to win an election, but even better to be back with the home team. So excited to be here with everyone and doing things for municipal government again. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. So um, uh, you're, you're, you're back and you're kind of dove right into a couple issues. You've got a couple of things you're working on. Let's touch on those real quick before we get into the other stuff. So what's some of the, the kind of the hot topics you're, you're dealing with? So I think the biggest one that I'm working on right now um, is probably familiar to many of our mem- members, excuse me, is House Bill 6448. Uh, so this legislation comes from Representative Cali. And it actually exempts certain critical infrastructure workers from having to adhere to the 14-day quarantine, as we've gotten very used to in the pandemic, if one person gets COVID-19, anybody who has been in direct or close contact with them is notified and recommended to do a 14-day quarantine while they test themselves to discern whether or not they've contracted the virus. So as we go into the winter months, that sets us up with a predicament again, because with municipal governments, many of the critical resources and structures and services that we have are manned by small staffs. So that means if one individual may get exposed to COVID-19, that could wipe out an entire crew of folks who do very, very necessary job in their communities. A really good example of this is 911 dispatch. I think we have a big idea that the dispatch rooms are filled with 30, 40 people, you know, answering calls and all kinds of stuff. But what we realize is it's usually six to 10 people in a municipality. They can't wear a face mask while they're doing this work because you have to hear them clearly. And so if one person isn't able to show up because of exposure, that limits everybody else from being able to do their job. So what we're mm-hmm. trying to accomplish with House Bill 6448 is to expand that exemption Currently in language, there's an exemption for critical energy workers, which is good because we have folks who work municipal utilities, but we also need to include wastewater, 911 dispatch, like I mentioned before, EMTs in addition to paramedics, which are included in the bill, um, and also road clearing too, something that only comes up once a year when it starts snowing, like today in Detroit actually, but making sure that we have you know, all those folks who are on hand, ready to go. And if there's one exposure, even in that time where folks are getting tested, folks can still get to work because these are jobs that we need throughout all of our communities in Michigan. And so we're working with folks here in Lansing to make sure that they're aware of all of those critical needs that are on the table, having conversations with the governor's office and other legislators, but it's also really helpful too for our members and their municipalities to contact their legislators and let them know that, hey, my community has a need for any one of these services and it's really helpful to make sure they're included in that exemption as well. Okay, well, good. That that does, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of things uh, COVID related, and that kind of rolls into our, our next big topic, which was today we rolled out our, our community uh, stabilization plan. 
And uh, I was hoping uh, Chris and John and others, Jen and, and Harrison, could kind of explain, you know, what, what this plan is and, and why we're doing it now. Sure. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. This is really important in the shifting landscape of, of lame duck right now is, is we're trying to navigate all that uh, while we've got all these critical issues that we're dealing with. Um, you know, Jen's, uh, seems like Jen's been handed a number of big issues that are, are popping up here uh, in these last few weeks. But as we've talked about before, lame duck right now uh, is essentially this week, next week, and possibly the third week of December. So we'll have at most nine days of session, but with COVID even hitting sitting legislators right now, we're seeing those days potentially shrunk. Uh, so we may only have, uh, you know, two day, one to two days each week. So you know, we're looking at somewhere south of nine days to get done all of these different items. So as we look at the most important things that uh, are critical to our membership right now, it really surrounds these these uh, community stabilization package issues. It's the extension of Open Meetings Act remote meetings. It is dealing with uh, some relief for our 24 city income tax communities that are being uh, damaged right now because of uh, policy, the COVID and then some of the state law. And then it's you know the unknown of what will happen after December 31st tax day for property taxes. If we look at uh, commercial office vacancies and downtown businesses uh, going, closing down permanently. So I know I'll let Jen kind of weigh in a little bit here on what's been going on with OMA. And then uh, John and I know have been tag teaming quite a bit on the uh, the two tax issues. So we'll take from there. Right. I do want to come real quick uh, about the community stabilization plan itself. It's, 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 we hear a lot of, at the league, you know, because uh, we have over 520 members, like, and, and it's tough to, to, to do everything for everyone, right? Because we have small communities that have different needs. We have big communities that have different needs. So this plan, you know, like Chris explained, is a three-part plan. And there's parts of it that maybe doesn't affect, directly affect your community, but there's other parts that does affect, directly affect your community. For example, the Open Meetings Act uh, uh, law that Jen's going to talk about. Um, that one, obviously, everyone uh, right now, a lot of our members anyways, have meeting virtual, or they thought about meeting virtually, or they 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 continue to meet virtually, or, or different avenues there. So, uh, Jen, why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about what that part of the plan um, is calling for. Sure. So, as um, many of our members can um, recall, just recently we had Senate Bill 1108, which is Public Act 228, that allowed for no reason virtual meetings until the end of this year. Um, you know, looking at how things are going, we know that there is a need to keep that uh, no reason virtual meeting allowance um, into next year. And so we have been working with Senator Tice over in the Senate um, and, um, and then as well as working in the House with Rep Meerman, who had um, a twin bill to 1108 um, to extend that and year end date to at least the end of March at a minimum. Uh, we'd like to see it longer, but um, you know, depending on the appetite, uh, we need to, to push it you know, out as far as we can. But at least at the end of March, the legislature um, will be up and operating again in the new year um, and we can go back at it. We are also looking to add um, 
local emergencies to be um, done through ordinance. Um, so that is a change we are seeking as well as uh, allowing, because there are municipalities that don't have charters and then there are municipalities with charters that don't have authorizing uh, language in it. So uh, there are a number of other tweaks we are looking to do, but in, as Chris mentioned, the short timeframe that we have and the appetite on both uh, sides of the aisle, uh, that date extension for the no reason virtual meetings is our number one um, push, especially since come um, the end of December here and anticipating that DHHS will push out um, public orders around the pandemic, um, there'll be a direct conflict between the Open Meetings Act and the gathering limitations that the, the pandemic order through um, MDHHS uh, has right now. Right, and, and you said a key word in there was no, no excuse uh, open meetings nope. or, no re or no, explain what that is. That means that you can hold a virtual meeting for any any reason. Um, okay. And the reason that that's important is going after December 1st, there's some very specific things in PA 228 now with the Open Meetings Act that would allow for someone to participate virtually if they have a medical condition. That wouldn't allow for the entire um, public body, but that individual. Or um, if a statewide uh, emergency by the governor is declared, um, which we know with the court case back um, in the early fall, that, that that's not happening now, and, or a local declared emergency that would put the public or public body um, health or safety in jeopardy if that meeting were to happen in person. And so uh, being able to declare uh, a local state of emergency through ordinance um, is, again, one of the changes we're asking for to be done. So, so currently now, let's say, let's hopefully they do pass something by December 31st, but if they don't, can the local health department still declare emergency and then they would be able to meet virtually under that or how would that work? Yes, but the local health department, remember, is usually at the county level or we have some counties that have a regional health department or the city of Detroit. Um, all, our other municipalities, most municipalities do not have a local health department. Um, and for a number of reasons, we do not anticipate all counties would make a um, public health de declaration. They would not declare a state of emergency. Okay, so that's why a statewide solution yeah. is needed to give people the option should they decide to want to do it that yeah, way. Yeah, and we're working with um, schools on this because school boards are public bodies and they cannot declare any type of local emergency. They would have to depend either on the state or the local unit of government. Um, so that's a body we're working with. Um, there's a number of public bodies uh, that this is affecting um, outside of just municipal. Okay. All right, uh, I do have a couple questions uh, came in. One is a general one, how are municipal budgets looking? We did talk about that during the news conference that we had this morning. Um, obviously the community stabilization plan is in part to, to address the, the, the financial needs of, of our communities, although it doesn't call for any tax increases. There are some tweaks that we're calling for in that community stabilization plan that would help our communities financially. Chris, can you speak, or John, generally, uh, you know, how the communities are doing with, you know, nine months into the, the pandemic? Sure, and I think, you know, as we, as we talk about these other two components of the package, it become really uh, evident how important they are for, for our local budgets. And one of the things that really uh, struck me, and, and, and it's a fact that we live with all the time, but it was nice to hear it said from kind of a third party uh, out to the media was uh, something Dr. Eric Scorzoni said uh, from MSU. And he talked about the fact that when you look back at 
at the impacts of the Great Recession on our local governments. It wasn't, you know, 2008 and 9 that were problematic necessarily for local governments. It was 2010 and 11 and 12 and 13. There was a long tail on the impact of the Great Recession. And I think we're, we're anticipating the potential for that same thing to occur here, for that tail, that long tail to hit local governments uh, didn't necessarily hit in 20, but will it start in 21 and 22 and 23 as we drag out, as we talked about, as I mentioned, you know, we have December 31st tax day coming up. This will be the first opportunity that um, commercial landowners or uh, you know, a, a office, office building uh, property owners will be able to come in and seek appeals on their value if they think that COVID has impacted them. And you, we could see that again, as we look at some of these businesses that are declaring you know, permanent work at home, remote work for their for their workforce. You know, what? How does that change the dynamic for uh, for property, especially commercial property? And so, you know, certainly as we move into this, that's one of our biggest concerns is that that great unknown of of what's coming uh, with March boards of review and and property appeals over the next year, two, three years, even. Um, you know, so that's that's a main part of of one of the pieces in the package. The other is is obviously income tax. We've already seen some of our income tax communities announcing layoffs. Uh, you know, we had the, the city of Detroit talking about cuts that they had to make back in September when they did their revenue conference in anticipation of the impacts from that. But Detroit's just one of those 24, certainly the biggest. But when we look across the spectrum, all 24 communities are facing some real impacts uh, to their budget starting this year. Again, once W2 start going out in January, you'll have people starting to file their, their city income tax uh, filings for the 2020 tax year. That's gonna be happening you know, towards the end of January and February is when we'll start to see that happen. Anyone who's been working from home uh, has, has the right to be refunded for days they didn't work in the city. Uh, and that could be a massive impact. Our, our estimates working with Treasury, uh, Treasury's uh, uh, Department of uh, Revenue and Taxation Analysis says, I think it could be upwards of $250 million lost for just those 24 cities. And that's a huge impact. We're talking, you know, 30, upwards of 30% of some of those communities income tax revenue, uh, which for those cities is a major part of their tax base. Some of them, it's even a majority of their tax base, depending on how they've set themselves up. And that's, that's Grayling to Benton Harbor. Uh, it is Hamtramck and Detroit, Grand Rapids, Big Rapids, Port Huron, Saginaw, Flint, we have, like I said, we have a host of communities all across the state of all sizes. And that $250 million impact is not something that can be managed overnight. Um, and, you know, any, any one of those communities we talk with, they're really looking at and, and very fearful of what's going to happen as they start developing this, this coming budget. And Chris, what's the solution we're, we're looking for there? I, in our news conference, we talked this morning with uh, Dr. Scarzoni, who you mentioned, um, but we actually have some solutions. And in fact, there's already some solutions out there. I think in our, in our press release, we talk about um, the state of Ohio has done some things. Uh, the Michigan Manufacturers Association here in our state has a, has a bill out there that's pending. What are some of the solutions we're looking at? Well, you know, for, for the income tax side, uh, really mimicking what a number of other states in Ohio has already done this, which is to allow the, for this pandemic period, to allow the, um, the community, the city income tax community, to continue, that those remote workers would not be able to claim any more days worked outside of the city than they had claimed in the prior year. So we'd allow people to and continue, you know, if they travel normally as a part of their work, we're not trying to, to uh, tax more 
than what's expected, but certainly whatever anyone had expected they would be paying when they went into the beginning of 20, we would ask them to continue that again because of the pandemic uh, and allow us an opportunity to get out of this and figure out you know, what changes need to be made, both the budgets and to tax law. Um, you know, so that is the main, uh, the main piece with regard to income tax. There's certainly a big impact for those communities from the loss of uh, taxable status for unemployment benefits. The state and the federal government do tax unemployment benefits. City Income Tax Act does not allow that. That's another $100 million of that $250 million that's related to that. Obviously, no one's asking to tax unemployment benefits during this period, but that's another piece of this that down the road, we're going to have to figure out how can the state or the federal government assist with uh, those communities providing some revenue to support the continued you know, frontline services that are so important in our communities. Okay. One of the questions that came in, uh, I think Chris had has touched on something you said early on, where you're talking about tax appeals and, and you anticipate you're not, the uncertainty of knowing, you know, what businesses are going to come in and, and request an you know appeal on their tax assessment. Um, so the question is, when you say appeals, would that include the possibility of dark stores appeal or of tax value as well? Do we see that issue being um, coming back again or continuing? I guess it hasn't gone away. Dark stores has not gone away. I think we're, you know, the issue that we're anticipating again is related to vacancy occupancy rates, especially when we're talking about commercial and office space or downtown businesses that are closed and vacant. You know, how long does that vacancy stay intact? Uh, you know, do those are those remote workers gone? Will they be coming back? So, you know, can someone come in and appeal based on that? Certainly the dark store issue for big box retail is still out there. Uh, luckily for most of those big box retailers, they've been doing fairly well during this period, uh, especially with their remote sales. So, um, you know, that one will continue as it has, but this focus really is more, and we're not seeing the impact yet, knock on wood, with regard to our residential tax base. But certainly though, you know, as we look at, as we look at that commercial space sector, what's happening there? Okay, the other uh, issue, so we had three three things that we're calling for in our community stabilization plan. One was the the deadline for extending the deadline for the Open Meetings Act, uh, virtual meetings uh, without any excuse, continue that at least through March. The second one was the income tax uh, issue for our 24 income tax cities. And John, I'll have you kind of talk about the, the third one, which uh, has to deal with the Headley Amendment and, and Proposal A. Yeah, ha happy to do that. Matt and, and kind of transitioning out of you know the freeze that you know Chris is talking about on the on the income tax side and and you know I think what's so important here to to recognize is that the pandemic has caused both short-term impacts and then these long-term impacts and you know the short-term stuff are things that are truly temporary that we have to have fixes to right now as Jen talked about with OMA and Chris was talking about on the city income tax side. I think it also recognizes the fact though that there are some longer term conversations that have to happen around those two issues as well. I mean, work as we know it today and the way we operate as local government will likely never be the same. And so those will continue. But that lagging indicator that Chris talked about, particularly on the property tax side, is why we've incorporated. And Matt, I can see it in your background right now, right? Our Save My City campaign talked a lot about the interaction between Headley and Proposal A and specifically some interaction that doesn't require uh, constitutional changes. And the first of those two is to allow property taxes to ebb and flow with the economy and really track more with inflation. Uh, it, it will, though, 
never go beyond what your charter limit is. It, it just allows it to track with that inflationary figure better than what it does now. So when we see those dips in, in, a, in a downward economy, we still feel that impact, but we don't have that drastic style impact that we had as we saw in the recessionary uh, times of, of the Great Recession. The second is the pop-up tax, which is what we've talked a lot about and making sure that we can claim that full growth on the pop-up. So when you have churn in your community from home sales, making sure that, that all of that available pop-up, which was really part of the intention when we looked at, at Headley and Proposal A initially uh, to be able to gather that so people didn't get taxed out of their homes. But when you sold that property and it turned over, the community could can gap, capture that full benefit. And so making these two, what we think are really, you know, kind of simple, straightforward changes would help us deal with those long-term lagging effects that, that Chris talked about and, and Dr. Spartoni talked about today at, at, the, at the press event. And so I think when we couple all of these things together, it gives us the ability to both manage the short term uh, from, from an actual operation standpoint, as one of our colleagues said, the continuity of government, which I really like that term, right? So it allows us to maintain that that continuity of government, have a stable revenue source in the short term to make sure that our current budgets don't fall out from under us and we have to make drastic cuts to services like public safety or parks and rec. And then we couple that with the long-term you know, changes to, to the financial system that we all deal with here in Michigan. And then Matt, as we've talked about that broken municipal finance system that will put us on a long-term path to stability here, allowing us to be more competitive in the future. Yeah, that's it's it's kind of one of those, those you know complex issues that we've been dealing with a long time. But you know, we 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 often, as you said, you know, when we talk about this, we talk about if these things aren't fixed before the next recession hits, our communities are going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, we're we're, we're here. You know, we don't know if this is a, a long term recession or short term or, or what it is yet, but we know that like you guys have said a couple of times, you know, this tail could be very long and it might not be impacting us right now, but it could two, three years down the road. That's why it's important to address these these issues right now. Well, yeah, Matt, I mean, we've been, we've been sounding the alarm on this for, you know, the last four or five years now. Yeah. And, you know, with, with the warning that this was going to be upon us at some point. Now, we wouldn't have predicted it would have been in the middle of a pandemic, but it was predictable that it would show up in one form or another. And, and here we are. Um, and without these types of changes, uh, we're gonna really face some dire consequences, both from what the decisions our local units of government will have to, make, have to face, but also don't forget the decisions that the state has to make. And Matt, I see you put you know, here in the chat, the ability for our members to weigh in. And it is critical that our members weigh in because action by the legislature now will help them uh, in the future, because the action that they may have to take next session could be very drastic in terms of, you know, types of, of, of revenue um, decisions they're going to have to make, you know, decisions on how, uh, you know, these communities will be impacted and if there's any ability for them to reach out and support, which there's likely not going to be. And, and so their action today will prevent a, a lot of things from happening in the future that, that we, you know, have been, like I said, sounding the alarm on and the time is now to act and our members need to, to impress that upon the legislature much like we did today. Right, and I, go ahead, Chris. As you say, one of the things I think that is so important, again, as we talk about impacting all of our members is that when we see a drop in property values as we saw happen uh, during the Great Recession, those are permanent, they don't come back. 
there is no there is no recovery with economic activity, which again is so important why we need uh, these two changes because it will allow we certainly aren't going to be able to stop a a drop in value if something dropped in value it dropped in value, but as the economic as the economy recovers, which hopefully it will, it would allow local government property tax bases to also track with that economic activity so you can recover some of that gap. I mean, we're seeing tens of billions of dollars in gap right now that still exist, you know, over 10 years after the end of the, the Great Recession. And we have communities that are still back at their 2008 tax base. I know I've talked to a number of managers and folks who are even uh, participants attending a, a, on this uh, show today. You know, it is real and it is permanent. So it is so important as we head into this next year that we get this addressed now. I think that's a good point uh, that you brought up there and it, it kind of goes to one of the questions here. Uh, and the question is, is there a prayer of that long-term tax fix? That's the question. And I think, you know, we are pushing that these three things get done during this lame duck, but we're also realistic that know that some of this stuff might might kind of spill over into the next term. Uh, is, is there kind of a, a one-two uh, reasoning uh, behind doing this now? Yeah, so Matt, let, let me let me tackle that a, a little bit, and then maybe somebody else will come in and 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 pull me back a little bit. But yeah, I mean, we always talk about next session, but again, the the time is now, and you know, when we talk about and 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 Char, I know, you know, I've sat in the room as we've talked about this before through some of our internal committee stuff. You know, this this thought process is there a prayer that there's going to be a long term tax fix right now. Uh, there's absolutely a chance, but the reason there's a chance is because we push it to the forefront. The legislature is not going to do this on their own, okay? And so if we sit back as, as an organization or you sit back as members and elect not to weigh in on it, the chances of it happening are going to be much less. But if we as an organization and you as members take the next you know day or two to reach out and really explain you know the importance and, and the, the critical nature of doing this today, you know, or this week or next week, you know, here in lame duck, um, that will help push this issue forward. Can, can we say it'll get done for sure? I don't know. And if it doesn't, we'll be back next session, absolutely pounding the desk to make sure that we try and get it done again. But um, we need to help them understand the crisis that we face right now. And without us really explaining it to them, there is no impetus for them to act. And that's why we're doing what we're doing and why we've asked you to do and weigh in. And so we hope all of you do that. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's it's so important for them to hear from our members. You know, we put that, uh, I did put the link for our action center in there. And there was a, a template letter that you can go in and, and send right off to your, your legislature um, and the governor. And so far, we've had about a dozen members do that. And we appreciate that very much, but we need a lot more than that. Um, I feel like I've already entered the telethon stage of this uh, discussion here now. Please call now. The phones are ringing. No, but we seriously, we do need, we really do need your support because, you know, they see our, 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 our lobbying team here all the time uh, and they appreciate them and, and they're, they're very good at what they do. But at the same time, unless they're, you're, they're hearing from the membership, you know, they, they, they're less likely to, to want to do something. If they hear from the mayor of, you know, uh, uh, Flint or, or whoever, uh, you know, that, that has a lot more impact than just seeing from hearing from our advocates here in, in Lansing. So that's very important that they reach out. I'd, I'd love to, by the end of the day to have, you know, double, double the number of members that have sent those letters. Uh, so uh, keep letting those phone rings. Um, so, 
on what John said and Chris said and you, I mean, we can only do in explaining the reality of the situation, but you as a member calling and talking about your 2008 to 2010, say property values for a 2020 service delivery costs and, and how that calculation just doesn't work out. You know, it, that coming from one of our members directly is invaluable compared to uh, our team talking about it in more generalization. I think one thing that, that we really appreciate too is when when our members end up as legislators, I mean, the, the legislator who's, who is introducing the bill on the Headley and Proposal AFIX is the former mayor of Royal Oak, Representative Jim Ellison. And he has been a huge, a huge supporter of the league and this issue throughout his time here and recognizes how important it is and how devastating the Great Recession was to his local economy and his local community. And so, you know, turning in this legislation, we've worked very close with him over the last year and that bill will be read in tomorrow. Uh, and so we'll have links for it so we can make sure that a, a blog is posted on our Inside 208 legislative blog so members can have an opportunity to, to specifically point to a piece of legislation. This is what we need passed. And the Ellison bill, this is the one dealing specifically with uh, the Headley and Proposal A, is that correct? And that's going to be, you're saying that's going to be introduced tomorrow or, or dropped uh, tomorrow. Um, and what, one, of the, one of the persons had a good comment here is like, I've already reached out to my senator rep. They're on board, but unfortunately, they're on the wrong side of the aisle. So they're, they're interpreting that as because they have Democratic reps and, and Dems aren't in control in the House and Senate. That, you know, there's there's not really much to do there. Is what's your reaction or what's your what's your response to that, John? Yeah, two two things there. Uh, you know, one it, I think it's still important, obviously, that they hear from you whether you know you're on on board or not. And the other thing is though, is part of what we've done here with our outreach um, through the the advocacy tool is that it's not just your senator and rep that it's going to. It's actually going to leadership. Um, because we want to make sure that they understand, it's also going to the governor's office, uh, that they understand that this is not just an isolated issue in a couple of communities, but that this is truly a statewide problem, and that they, as legislative leaders, who really at this point are the ones that are setting the agenda for lame duck and determining what is and what isn't going to be a priority, and even more so when we deal with a, a shortened uh, schedule, as Chris has kind of talked about, due to the impacts of, of COVID, um, they need to hear from you. And so, yes, absolutely. We still need to use this tool that we've provided for you to reach out. And as Jen sort of mentioned, picking up the phone and calling, uh, that is just much like, like we talk about in our federal advocacy, a very important tool and one that, that should be utilized as well. And you guys also plan to use that in your advocacy efforts to take that letter and say, hey, we have X number of members sign on to this from all over the state of communities of different shapes and sizes. So, so that, you know, we'll be using that as, as, as approach as well. Yeah, Matt, and I, and I would say, I mean, put a little pressure on the membership here, right? I mean, you talked about having a dozen in and you wanted to double that number by the end of the day today, and we got to do better than that, right? I mean, you know. Right, I was being uh, kind. <laughs> you know, 20, 24 members out of 500 plus is, is, you know, I'm not very good with math, but that percentage isn't very good, right? Um, right. You know, we got to push that number up so we can say, you know, look, we, we got a quarter of our membership or a third of our membership or a half of our membership that's put looking to weigh in on this, you know, and that's going to speak volumes. Um, and, and to your point, Matt, that really helps our ability to showcase what we're talking about and, and prove that our members do care and are concerned about it and that it will impact. Well, that's okay. just it. I mean, I think when we look at, at our ability to effectuate change, it is driven by our grassroots. It's driven by our members. 
And if we don't have engagement, if members don't don't make that call, don't don't send that letter in, the ability to make this change is is severely diminished. Um, you know, we won't make change without all of all of you engaging and making your voice heard. And this impacts every single member. Yeah, for sure, it really does. Um, I, I do, there was one question is not so much related to this, but it was on Facebook and I'll ask it. That's probably for John. Um, how about transportation funding and specifically Act 51 dollars? Uh, uh, anything you can say about that topic? Yeah, I, I can I can talk on that a little bit too. Uh, but before I do that, I just looked at how many people were on this call right now. Um, so when you take away us and probably some league staff that, that's on the back end, there's 150 people on this call. Um, you know, so hopefully uh, nobody has any excuses for not using that link and uh, starting to reach out and do that and take the two minutes it's going to take to uh, to send that out to, to leadership. So please, uh, I'll, I'll you know emphasize again how important that is. Um, on Act 51, though, uh, you know it's interesting. I'll say this is is somewhat good news, but you know when the legislature passed the budget here just before October 1st. Um, transportation funding is flat or roughly flat for the current fiscal year now. Uh, it's up, if my memory serves me correctly, about 25 or $30 million over the previous fiscal year. So again, essentially what you're going to see is, is a, a stable revenue source when it comes to Act 51. Uh, but just remember, though, there is a, a mix of things within that. So it's still true that gas tax revenue is down at this current point. But um, the legislature has made its full commitment to the $600 million in general fund that was part of the previous transportation proposal. Um, they had to put in about another 150-ish million dollars to make that commitment this current fiscal year, and they did find the revenue in which to do that. And that's how that funding source is essentially staying stable. I think what we're seeing is a general trend upward of increased consumption when it comes to gas. Uh, and so that should not only further stabilize that number, but also as we get into the next fiscal year, allow for some natural growth to that. Uh, and, and so right now, you know, while, while flat isn't always good, uh, in this case, it's probably about as good as we could have expected. Uh, and the, the future outlook of this puts us back on a relatively normal trajectory. All right, thank you, John. Um, so I did post a couple of links. I posted a link again to, to the letter that we talked about. I posted a link to a fact sheet that we have out there about our community stabilization plan with a lot more details and in depth. That fact sheet can also be used as a as talking points document. So if you decide you wanna call your lawmaker, you're, you have their number, uh, you know, that's probably even more effective than sending the letter to be perfectly honest, because if they hear from you, um, they can't ignore you as easily if you're on the phone with them. So uh, we appreciate uh, you doing that as, as well. Um, and I think we're, that's most of the questions. Did I uh, miss any other uh, questions or anything, Betsy? The only other question that came in, um, I think is back when Jen was talking about the OMA legislation. Um, it says even for communities under 10,000 in population for declaring a local emergency. Yeah, so the change would just allow um, where it says, I think currently the Senate Bill 1108 said that locals could declare via charter, um, we would be adding um, ordinance is in as well. So there wouldn't be any kind of uh, population thresholds or anything on that. Well, I'll just add, Matt, here, I think 
just if, if we want to drop the link in, Betsy, maybe for our Inside 208 blog. We're obviously at the very first day here tomorrow of, of the lame duck, the real lame duck period. Um, you know, I encourage members to make sure if you haven't already, make sure you sign up for our Inside 208 legislative blog. As, as these bills, Jen's been working on getting this uh, extension to OMA, as that, as that gets introduced, as the Ellison bill, uh, we have an official link for that, uh, the city income tax issue. As we get these things, uh, you know, Harasana's got 6448 that she talked about with regard to municipal employees, essential workers. As all these things get going, we will be posting, uh, posting blogs and members will have immediate access uh, in their email inbox as soon as we post those. So I encourage members, stay up to date during these next three weeks. A lot's gonna happen, a lot will happen fast and we need, to, we need your help uh, as we move through this process, so thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, because it's lame duck, we're going to kind of step up our game a little bit here with the Monday Morning Live. We've been doing it every other week, at least for the next couple of weeks. We're going to go every Monday. Um, so our next Monday Morning Live will be this Monday. Uh, I believe that's December 7th. Um, so hopefully we'll have some some progress to report on at that point. But uh, as always, you know, if you have questions about anything you read in our community stabilization plan for our team, uh, feel free to reach out to me or, or to them individually. Um, and I think that's everything. Uh, just wrap it up, Jen. Did you have something? I do. I can't. We can't go without mentioning um, gravel mining here. Oh, Monday, okay. Of course. Live. <laughs> um, so as of right now, um, they are they, as in the Senate, um, are undecided. Uh, if Senate Bill 431 and 829 will be taken up on the floor this week. There's a very good chance if the votes are there that it will be. So even if you've already talked to your Senator, we need you again to tap them about what is the rush to bring a bill that needs a lot of work to the Senate. Um, why vote on it right now in lame duck with this limited time on something that needs so much more work that we can have discussions and we can do this in the new year. The Senate's coming back. The House has not lost their their numbers when it comes to majority. Um, and so don't rush this bill through. Move it to next year and let us keep working on it. Right. And then the gravel mining bill, I didn't want to, I don't want to brush over that. Can you just explain, Jen, you know, I know a lot of people might think, well, I don't have a gravel mine, so I don't have to worry about it, but this is an issue that affects all of us. Can you explain that a little bit, what it is and, and why yep. it's so important? So this is a preemption bill, a zoning preemption in, in the Michigan Zoning Enabling Act that really is laying out, um, there was a woman, uh, a citizen in committee the last time this was in Senate Transportation who had this great phrase of um, a bill by or for gravel by gravel. Um, I mean, the, it, the bill was written by the aggregate um, industry and really it's, it's a safe fall. They are amending um, no serious consequent definition. So basically if you can show what you're mining is going to produce a profit and you turn in a plan that checks, you know, these boxes of information, no one can deny you. Um, it doesn't even allow for review of that plan that you turn into the local municipality. I mean, can you imagine any other site plan review or development that goes through the planning and zoning process and submits a site plan and you can't actually review it and, and determine if it has negative impacts on your community or surrounding properties? Um, and so that's really what this is. There's really three things 
It takes away all local government oversight. Um, we're already very limited in that, um, what you can and can't do when it comes to what is a, a very serious consequence. It um, puts a ceiling in for reclaiming a mining site after the fact. These sites are all different sizes and it should cost what it costs to reclaim a site after um, it's used um, and the mining operation is done and can no longer um, it to be that. And then it has a clause in there called de novo. And um, for those of you, you can talk to your municipal attorney about this, but basically what that does, it throws out any prior precedent when it comes to uh, zoning um, variances or any kind of court case that only going forward, would you be able to use this law, Senate Bill 431, in deciding um, any kind of contested applications in court. Um, and so that throws out precedent. And in one of our communities, they there is a mining operation that has been in court with that particular municipality since back in the late 80s. And so it would throw all that court precedent out. Um, and th there's no reason that that de novo part should be in there. I mean, we asked for that to be stripped long time ago um, because that's really the legislature overturning the judicial branch. And when we talk about the three branches of government and everybody has their role, we're now having the legislative branch put a huge precedent in taking that out um, right. what the courts have found and when we talked with representative gary howell who's who's represented in that area one of the areas where there's the the, the gravel mine in metamora area he talked about he was a municipal attorney and he's been fighting this issue since the mid 80s like you yeah. said so and he said what happens is is the the industry finally just is like well we're just going to change the law because we're tired of dealing with these locals and that's a problem i mean that's a real problem because these these locals are there to make the decisions that's best best for the residents and when you take that away from them you know, what's, what's the point, you know, if we don't have local say or local control? Yeah, there's a whole host of environmental issues as well. Um, the Michigan Environmental Council, the Sierra Club, there's a number of other organizations who are out there opposing this um, strictly on those environmental issues. Um, and so that's another, this Senate Bill 829 that has been tie barred to 431 um, puts in this false kind of sensibility that uh, Eagle is going to be doing all of this review and protection when it comes to groundwater in um, individuals' uh, wells. It's not. It's a bunch of words on a piece of paper that kind of goes around in circles. There's no oversight. And again, that's just like 431. There's a lot of words in there that if you would read it really quickly, you think, oh, this, okay. this makes sense. But again, it's allowing a applicant to turn in an application with information that the municipality has no right to review. That's crazy. They just, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And again, when you talk about municipalities that don't have mining operations, this is a very slippery slope. It sets right. precedent for other special interests to come in and say, hey, you did it for the mining industry. We want it for this. We want it for that. Yeah. And that, that would obviously have a far reaching impact to all of our members. And that's why it's so important that everybody pays attention to this issue and helps us when they can and not just the ones that are has a gravel mine in their backyard. Yeah. Well, these trucks, I mean, we all know that these materials need to be moved um, in, in mind and in, in things like that. But these trucks go through communities that have no oversight and no say. Um, the schools, where these mines end up going, it'd be what our state needs to focus on is doing a very comprehensive study of where the minerals and resources are in our community and across the state. We haven't had something done in the last at least 40, 40 years. 
So, I mean, if the state really truly wants to invest, let's find out where these resources are so that municipalities aren't spending time, money, on and resources on planning to find out that there's a gravel, you know, there's gravel or sand resource in the ground. Um, let's not build neighborhoods around those areas it, because a mine in the middle of nowhere is a lot different than a mine possibly abutting up to residential neighborhood For and sure. that there's no differential in in this package in the in these bills that a mine next to a residential neighborhood is going to be treated the same as one out in the middle of nowhere that would not have a negative impact on surrounding people because they wouldn't be close. Okay and what are those bill numbers again that people should uh, oppose? Senate Bill 431 and 829. All right. All right. I did have another question came in before I get to that. I do feel like I mentioned joke, jokingly said this felt like a, a little bit of a telethon, but it, I have uh, email alerts set up every time anybody sends one of these new letters. So since I've been on the call, I've actually gotten four email notifications from people sending out the letters. So it, literally I'm getting a, like a, almost like a phone ring to my phone computer. So I appreciate you guys doing that. Keep sending those letters. We really could. Uh, we really appreciate it very much. Um, one question um, re regarding water shutoffs. Um, do you think they will consider a ban on water shutoff until December 31st? Yeah, so I, I do think, I shouldn't even say I think, I do know this is um, part of the discussion between legislative leaders and the governor's office right now. Uh, I, although I do not think December 31st is the deadline anymore uh, for a potential shutoff. I think much like we're talking about with the Open Meetings Act, we're looking at that being extended through the first quarter of the year, um, you know, and then allowing you know, as, as we know, the, as the pandemic continues to, to, to move forward um, and with the promise of a vaccine, maybe an end in, in sight, uh, that people's access to, to clean drinking water and the ability to, to stay healthy and, and sanitize themselves is really, really critical. So we've weighed in and, and talked with both um, legislative leadership offices and the governor's office and, and have informed them that there's uh, two sides of this coin, right? Obviously, we want to make sure our residents have access to clean drinking water and that, you know, if the intention is to do this short term, we would absolutely support that. But if this is going to linger beyond the first quarter of the year, we have to have some serious discussions about what the revenue impacts are going to be to, to local municipalities and, and the water system. So we are tracking that very closely. Uh, at this sense, I think it's 50-50 whether it gets done before the end of, of the session. I know it is a priority for the governor's office, um, but there are still some differences and some disagreements between the legislature and, uh, and the administration right now. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, I, I do want to mention one other thing, um, Matt, and over the weekend we learned of uh, the passing of former state Senator Tom Caspers. And I'm sure there's many of you uh, on the phone that are, are, are no Tom or have worked with him over the course of, of his career in the legislature. Uh, I had the, the very fortunate experience of almost all of my time here at the League being able to work with him very closely, uh, both on, on transportation policy issues as he chaired the uh, Senate Transportation Committee, uh, but also on, on energy and environment issues, which he was very involved in. Uh, and he was a, a staunch supporter of the UP, um, he was our legislator of the year in, in 2014. Uh, I, I know that, uh, you know, I, I've spent, you know, like I said, a tremendous amount of time with him 
And, and I know there's a lot of people out there that will miss him uh, and his advocacy and, and sort of his breath of fresh air as he always talked about UP issues and, and the communities up there in such a loving and, and respectful way. And so I just wanted to recognize that he was a, a, a great legislator and honestly a great friend. And I know he'll be missed by many. We just want to offer our deeper, deepest condolences to his family and, and all those that he's worked with. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we only award two uh, legislators of the year each year, one or two, and he's one. He got one of them ones in, in 2014. So it, it speaks very highly of him that you know it's not something we just give out to any, anyone. It's really that someone has passionate for our communities and what we do. And he was certainly uh, one of those uh, lawmakers that, that had that. All right. Thank you, John, for sharing that and, and talking about him. Um, so that should wrap it up for today. Again, we'll, we will be back here next Monday. Um, also, we're looking at uh, doing a name change for our Monday Morning Live because we used to do these on Monday morning and, and we don't. Now we're doing it at noon on Mondays and sometimes they move around. So if you have a good idea on what our name change should be going into next year, we'd be happy to uh, hear it. So, uh, shoot post it on Facebook or, or shoot me or any one of these team members a, a message. One of, the, one of the things we're looking at is maybe live with the league or, or something more uh, general like that. So once again, just thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you team. And uh, we'll talk to you again in a week. Bye now. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.